Welcome to the Rooster Crows, brought to you by Lawrence Park Community Church. I am your host, Roberta Howie. This week, we are doing a very special Lenten episode. Reverend Stephen Milton of LPCC has been taking us all on a journey around Lent and Easter traditions on our social media. These have ranged from tiny tidbits to the fabric of our societies themselves. Today, Stephen and I explore just a few of these traditions. Happy Holy Week, Stephen, and happy Maundy Thursday and Good Friday and Easter and the day after Easter to you. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, it, it, this this particular uh, Lent and Easter seems even longer than usual, given what I've been doing. <laughs> and you've been doing so much at Lawrence Park, and in terms of all the things that come with Lent, Lent is a very busy season for one that focuses on like quiet contemplation. And what we've truly appreciated is you've put together all these posts that talk about all the different things of Lent. And I guess the big overarching question is, why? Why did you put this together? Yeah, I've been asking myself that too. Um, this grew out of something that I did, uh, I've done for a number of years uh, over the past few years, which is I've been doing this kind of thing at Christmas time. On December 1st, I would start a sort of countdown to Christmas where every single day I would post something about the symbols of Christmas. And that's easy because, of course, we all live through that, right? You know, Christmas trees and Christmas carols and all that stuff and each one of those things has a really rich history and I've done that for a number of years and people have really liked it and I've shared it you know both with my immediate church community and my personal social media but also with the United Church of Canada's Facebook um, posts and there they've been just shared all over the all literally all over the country which has been really fun so I wondered this year okay you know I'm a minister I should do something for Lent and I was thinking, well, I wonder if I could pull this off for Lent, like do the same thing where I just sort of gave a, you know, a, a commentary or some background on the symbols of Lent. And it seemed so easy when I conceived it because it was obvious what the first week would be because, you know, you've got Shrove Tuesday and Ash Wednesday and you've got to talk about fasting and Lent and all that sort of stuff. And then, of course, the last week and a half would be easy because you've got Palm Sunday and you know, Maundy Thursday and Good Friday and and I'm kind of a Christian art geek, so you know, the there is no other aspect of the Christian faith which is paint, being painted more than the crucifixion. So I figured I would give Fridays over to talking about crucifixion paintings and all the symbolism built into that. This'll be easy. Except, you know, Lent's really long. <laughs> Lent's like 40 <laughs> days. There's 40 days of Lent plus six Sundays, and it's like Oh my, like the 10 of those posts are easy, but what am I going to do with the rest? So, um, that's, I, so I foolishly got into this thinking, oh, this will be a piece of cake. And then I realized, oh man, I don't know as much about this as I thought. Um, but not to be deterred, I decided to just do research, uh, like a lot of research and, and encountered some just amazing things. So for your research, was it really just like, Googling or going on Pinterest and being like Lent memes and look that up or how how deep down the rabbit hole did you go chasing the little Easter bunny that is the Lenten stuff? 
Yeah, pretty deep, all things considered. No, I did not use Pinterest. Um, and basically, I, I found online that there were some decent encyclopedias which had been written about Lent and Easter. So I always, always started there. And then I checked their sources and then I drilled some more. And then a friend recently actually turned me on to Apple News, um, which is like this massive compendium of magazines and newspapers from basically all over the world. And uh, that proved to be really useful as a quick way to uh, research the popular stuff. And then I'm kind of a I'm kind of a geek for early Christian stuff, so I know a lot of sources related to that. So for the deep history, I was able to go there. Um, so there are a lot of different types of sources which I consulted, which I think is why I was able to you know find so many interesting things and so much breadth in this because. Lent and Easter are not just things of the past, obviously, they're things which we, you know, still um, celebrate now. So uh, it was good having a whole variety of sources that I could check. Amazing. I think that's one of the big things that I've learned reading your posts as well, following on social media as well, is just how much stuff we either assume is relatively new when it's actually been around for centuries, or stuff that we assume has been around for centuries, and really it's rather new in the wonderful world of Christian history and just how we're able to take all of these beautiful traditions and say they're now ours and we're going to use them sometimes to really good effect and sometimes to a little bit of a scary effect and so thank yeah, you it's, it's been really weird and like I think you know we're we're members of the United Church of Canada so it's a Protestant um, Protestant denomination and uh, this year we celebrated Ash Wednesday at our church, which I think is only the second time I've done that since I've been there, and I've been there for three years, and nobody could tell me when they'd done it before that. Um, it just wasn't a thing. It was sort of considered a Catholic kind of thing. And what's interesting is that many of the Lenten practices come and go. Like over 2,000 years of history, they'll be really strong for a while, and then when the Protestant Reformation happened in the 1500s, the Protestants just sort of said, all that Catholic stuff, let's throw it out the window and really strip this thing down to its scriptural basics, you know. Um, but then a bunch of things sort of started coming back in the 19th century, and now Protestants do things which a couple of century ago, centuries ago would have gotten you into trouble for being papists, you know, being way too Catholic. So, yeah, these things sort of come and go, and it's interesting as a sort of reflection on how much even us moderns who you know value individual thought uh, and the freedom of thought have come to embrace these old ritualistic patterns just because it seems to give shape to time. It gives otherwise you know sort of you know especially during the pandemic when every day seemed the same as every other day. You know I think you know being able to have days that are explicitly different from the day before and the day after now seems more sensible. We're starting to sort of recognize the the value of ritual time, you know, when, you know, Ash Wednesday is different from Show Tuesday, which is different from Palm Sunday. Especially when it's not just the fact that you're stuck inside or that you're dealing with quarantine, it's that you're disconnected from friends, from family, from those traditions. You don't realize how much you miss being able to gather and share these rituals until you're told you can't do it for the sake of public health and suddenly it's the most important thing in the world. So with that in mind, I want us, I'm wondering if we can do a deep dive, and these are just a few of your selections here based off purely my decision as the authority of the host of today's podcast and no other 
expertise whatsoever. And if anyone wants to read any of the other options, we can do the plug for the social media links later, but there's tons here. So if we can start off with the very first one, only because we are getting close to the time of season for this, Hot Cross Buns, the bane of every music teacher's existence, because you have to learn how to play that on the recorder, and you hate it, and then you don't realize it's actually a baked good you can buy at the Metro, which is nice. Yeah, and nowadays, of course, you can buy it anytime you want, right? But there was a time when it was only available um, uh, in the Easter season at Christmas and for funerals. And that's kind of weird. And the story behind this is that apparently a Catholic monk many centuries ago, before the Protestant Reformation, he was uh, baking, it was common to bake, uh, to bake bread and put a cross in it, right, um, for mass and stuff. And he decided to bake it one day and give it to the peasants around him. And it sort of caught on. And the thing was that the cross was considered to have, in medieval Europe, kind of magical powers, right? Like it was, uh, people used to steal uh, blessed communion wafers and use them as medicines and stuff. And hot cross buns, because they had the cross on it and they were made available to regular people, it got this reputation for having magical powers, um, or which of course they would call holy powers. So people would get hot cross buns and then they would keep them, like not eat them, but keep them and uh, hang them up from the rafters on strings and let them just dry out over the course of the year. And that was believed to ward off evil spirits from coming into your home. Um, And some people would take a dried hot cross bun and crumble it up and mix it with water and then drink it. And then that could actually heal you if you're um, suffering from various, you know, health ailments. And the idea that hot cross buns were, had these magical properties was considered something that was, you know, very rooted in Catholicism. So when the Brits uh, became Protestants, they became suspicious of all things Catholic. And hot cross buns were actually one of those things which fell under suspicion. And um, in the late 1500s, Uh, there was a move to ban hot cross buns because they had these popish and magical uh, qualities. And Queen Elizabeth I herself actually passed a law banning the sale of these buns except for on Christmas Day, on Good Friday, and for funerals uh, because she just hated the fact that, you know, this popish kind of treat was on the streets all the time. So what happened out of that, and this gets back to what you were saying about the recorder, is that by law in England, shops only closed on two days, two days of the week other than Sundays, and that was Good Friday and Christmas Day. Okay, so Good Friday, all the shops would close, which included the bakeries. So bakers would make their own hot cross buns and then uh, give them to their wives and children to go out into the street and they'd have these big baskets full of hot cross buns which would have you know cloths over them and they so to keep them warm and people would call out hot cross buns like not cross buns right because they were called cross buns but hot cross buns because they were freshly baked hot cross buns hot cross buns one a penny two a penny right That's where that song comes from. It was from people hawking cross buns in the street on Good Friday. That, I'm so thrilled to know that eight-year-old me was participating in an Elizabethan Catholic Protestant war tradition. 
and we <laughs> no clue about it. All I knew was that the recorder was out of tune. And they are absolutely delicious nowadays. Are there any particular rules around like what goes in them, what qualifies as a hot cross bun, or is it just a bun that is sweet, may or may not have raisins, and there's a cross on top? Well, there's no there's no formal rules, right? But and and what we call hot cross buns have now diversified because they're available all year long and they're becoming detached from their religious significance. So there's like jalapeno hot cross buns, there's chocolate hot cross buns, there's caramel hot cross buns. Like in in Australia, they even have Vegemite hot cross buns, you know, which sounds like a whole other level of heresy, you know. (laughs) And when I was doing the research for this, recently a... um, a former chaplain for the Queen, as part of the Church of England, has come out against these innovations in hot cross buns because they are obviously ignoring the uh, sacred significance of this wonderful treat. And it's so funny, like, you guys tried to ban them, why are you not protecting them, you know? I, I love it. What is old is new again, and I look forward to eating my hot cross bun and thanking Queen Elizabeth for basically annoying people enough with these rules that it's been kept alive for the past 500 years. It's just thank you, Queen Elizabeth I. If we can, I want to flip to a slightly different idea. And this is one that you posted sort of a couple weeks ago, if I recall. And personally, I love this theory. I love talking about it because it's Easter as pagan goddess theory. The idea that we as Eastering people took Easter from ancient goddesses and basically created a new trend. And then you have always two arguments. One is 100% Easter was stolen from ancient traditions and colonized, and now you have Easter as we know it. Or you have Christians that say nothing has ever been taken from anybody in their entire lives. And it sounds like there's a little bit of room in the middle, a little bit of debate and nuance in the middle. And knowing that we don't have four hours to discuss it, but we totally could. I'm wondering if you want to give us the briefest bullet points on this theory so people can explore it themselves. Yeah, sure. So the idea that Easter comes from a pagan goddess comes from the venerable Bede, uh, B-E-D-E. And um, he was a monk in the British Isles uh, in, I think, the 8th century, maybe the 9th century. And He was trying to explain to his uh, readers, fellow monks, about why do the British call Easter Easter when everybody else calls it variations of Passover, right? So if you look at the words for Passover in um, other languages, or rather Easter in other languages, like in other European languages, it's, uh, you know, it's Pac in French or Pasqua in Italian or Pasqua de la Resurrection in, in Spanish. Forgive me for my terrible pronunciation, which which mean which makes sense, right? Because uh, Jesus gets um, 
you know, the Last Supper and the crucifixion happen on Passover. Um, so it made sense that, okay, and, and there's all sorts of theological reasons why Jesus presents himself as the lamb that's going to take on the sins of humanity and be the Passover for um, humanity in the same way that God instructed the ancient Israelites to paint the lintels of their houses with lamb's blood, which they had sacrificed for that dinner so that the angel of death would pass over them and not kill their firstborn, right? This is part of the Exodus story. Okay, so Bede is trying to figure out, okay, why don't we call it Passover? Why do they call it Easter? And he deduces, he says, oh, well, there must have been a goddess called Ostra. Um, and uh, he, he reasons this because in the, the month of April was known as Ostra Monath. Um, and so he figured, okay, well, you know, us... We Christians, because we inherited the Roman calendar, we name our months after gods, right? Like January is named after the Roman god Janus, right? Um, and, uh, you know, and the days of the week were named after various Norse gods, like Thursday is named after Thor and Friday is named after Freya, right? So to his mind, it made sense. Well, we're doing this with the other ways of keeping time. So they must have done the same thing with the months. Except what scholars have now said is, well, actually, if you look at the rest of the months of the year, um, it doesn't actually make sense because what they did in those Anglo-Saxon months of the year was they named them after practical things. So there was like August was known as the weed month and November was known as the blood month because that's when you would um, kill your animals in anticipation of winter. So you're going to keep them cold all winter long and eat them. Um, and February in Britain was known as Mud Month because in Britain it gets muddy in February, right? So what about this Easter month then? Well, Easter in Oster in Anglo-Saxon meant opening. So April was the month that things open, like, you know, flowers open, right? So it kind of made sense. So Easter wasn't a goddess, rather Easter was just the name for opening. And that makes sense if you look at all the other months. However, uh, later on in Britain, like in the 19th and 20th centuries, where the kind of new paganism developed, they were looking for proof that the Christians had been inspired by everything pagan, right? Anything good about Christianity was originally pagan. So they saw this reference in Bede and went, aha, perfect. The problem is that nobody else except Bede in the Middle Ages ever makes reference to Easter as a goddess. So it's like, Nope, that's not where that came from. So, you know, and, and if you Google Easter, you know, pagan origin of Easter, you will find all sorts of supposed proofs leading back to Bede that this is how, why we have Easter. But actually, you know, it was about opening. And that makes a lot of sense. Like everywhere around the world where it's springtime, people have rituals. So Easter happens to happen at springtime. So sure, you know, there's always going to be some, there's always going to be parallels between new life to, you know, provided by Christ's resurrection and the fact that spring is doing all of its wonderful things at the same time. Does that make it pagan or is that just nature? And as Christians, we think that, you know, Jesus, the cosmic Jesus was present and active in the creation of all nature. So why shouldn't we marry nature with Christian practices? We're actually all worshiping the same thing. It sounds to me also, quite frankly, ancient Christians who are creating the idea or taking the idea of a pagan tradition. I don't see a lot of them. I don't see the ancient, usually not the most feminist 
leaders deciding that we're going to take the most important part of the Easter tradition, which is the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, and connecting it to a spring female goddess of flowers and eggs and bunnies. And like, it doesn't quite add up when we think about it too hard. This isn't to say that the Easter tradition or that Easter traditions don't take things from other cultures. And this isn't to say that Christianity doesn't take things from other cultures. We do, just we have to be correct in saying which cultures and which things are being taken and used. And no, it's, it's yet another reminder that you can't believe everything on a Facebook meme. No, and you know that, that's why it helps to drill down a couple of layers before you believe this stuff. Unless, of course, you're reading my posts, in which case you can believe everything you hear. They're 100% accurate, <laughs> no notes needed, scholars approved, and I see them in a term paper in coming years with some undergrads asking about ancient traditions. So, yes, exactly. <laughs> Note everything I say, by the way. I don't put it in the social media posts, but I do do it in my notes because I want to be able to remember where I came, where I found this stuff. I would like readers to know that when he does write his sermons, there are also little footnotes in the sermons as well so that you get all of the ideas cited and it's not just ideas off the top of his head. Speaking of pagan goddesses and the, and the idea of female worship, something that I noticed again in a post a few weeks ago, and I was doing the math myself afterwards, was that there's a holiday that is specifically noted in the Catholic Church that we don't celebrate too much in the United Church and in most Protestant traditions, but it is the Annunciation. And I'm wondering if you want to touch on what the Annunciation is and why it's in Lent. Yeah. Okay. So this is one of the this is one of the interesting ones because it bears on Christmas as well. So if you read the four gospel accounts, there are not too many things where you can say, "Aha! I know what time of year that happened." You know, you think that you'd be able to say, "Aha! Well, Christmas obviously happened in December. It was winter. Blah blah blah." But actually, there's no indication of that in the gospels at all. The only date that we can be totally sure of in the gospels is that Jesus died at Passover. That's it. Everything else is a conjecture. But, of course, people don't like conjecture. They like to fill in the blanks. So what happened was this. Jesus dies in Passover. The early centuries of Christianity, they deduced in ways which are unclear to the rest of us that uh, the Passover on which he died happened on March 25th, Okay, which is reasonable, like, you know, Passover, which is, does move because it's based on the Jewish lunar calendar, so it moves around. So they knew that Jesus died on Passover, and they assumed that it was March 25th. So for a long time, Good Friday happened on March 25th. But after a while, they realized, well, you know what? Like Passover keeps moving, and our calendars kind of shift around. So they decided, okay, we're going to say that Easter always happens on uh, the first... Sunday after a full moon after the spring equinox. Okay. 
And that's why Easter is still, you know, it still moves around, right? Like this year's Easter is going to be different from next year's Easter in terms of what day it falls on. Now, back then they believed, okay, so we know that he died, Jesus died on March 25th. Cool. Back then they believed in that major biblical figures like Moses and David and others, they died on the same day that they were born. So if you died on March 25th, that meant you must have been born on March 25th. Okay. But they made this twist when it came to Jesus. They said, you know, the really important thing about Jesus is not when he was born, but when he was conceived. Because properly speaking, that's when he really comes, you know, God becomes a human being on the day that he was conceived. Okay. Okay, so they said Jesus was conceived on March 25th. That's the Annunciation. That's when the angel Gabriel appeared in front of Mary and said, Hey, guess what? You've been chosen for this fantastic new position as the mother of God. Congratulations. And she says, Okay, I'll do it. Awesome. So Catholics to this day still celebrate the Annunciation on March 25th. Now, if you do the math, and you say, hmm, what day would Mary give birth if she had a nine-month pregnancy? You end up with December 25th. You know, it's funny, when I posted this on the United Church of Canada's Facebook site, there were all sorts of comments about this. And some people said, you know, just proving even more that the church is full of it <laughs> because this logic makes no sense at all. But, you know, the funny thing is, okay, granted, like, you know, the, we don't know why they chose March 25th. Um, and I mean, it used to be the, the uh, Roman day of spring. So that probably had some influence on it. But, um, but basically, you know, what they were trying to do is think holistically, right? So, you know, you die on the same day that you were born. That, that's like saying that this moment in time is connected to a previous moment in time. That's the kind of ecological thinking which we are encouraging our civilization to have, right? Like we're saying, you know, you got to understand that what you do to the oceans in Peru will have an effect on the weather in New York, right? Um, so when we say, oh, well, this is silly, superstitious, you know, calendar nonsense, let's keep in mind that a little more holistic thinking on our part could have prevented us from making such a mess of the world as it is now. Yeah. And I think there's something important in, especially when we deal with Easter and we deal with this particular season, the Lenten season is full of mystery, of being able to just say, yeah, it's kind of mysterious. And not all of it would last a scientific panel of our peers, but that's, that's okay this season. We're allowed to let that just be a little bit mysterious. And that's such an important part of it. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I think uh, and a greater appreciation of mystery would help us because it's, it's, um, it encourages humility, right? You know, if, if you talk to any scientist, they'll say to you, oh, I hardly know anything about the field that I study. And, my, and even the best of my field hardly knows anything because for every question answered, there's another 10 questions which get asked, right? Whereas socially, we tend to think, oh, science has got all the answers and they've got it almost all locked up. That's not at all the way it works. 
you know, in science as in philosophy and religion, um, mysteries abound. And once you realize that, you become humble and more open to learning things rather than less. With that, I'm wondering if we want to talk about the final uh, Lenten tidbit that you have given us, this final gift of the Lenten season for our trivia bank. The modern calendar at large influenced by the idea of Lent, which is both a very big idea to swallow and also considering that we've gone everywhere from hot cross buns to the Annunciation to whether or not it's a pagan goddess, it fits with, right in with our theme. Yeah, so and this is one of the things which I found really surprising was that like, you know, um, we're talking right now, this recording's being made at like, it's almost 2.15 in the afternoon, which means it's two hours after noon, right? Afternoon. Noon itself, we owe basically to Easter. And this is so weird, like, you know, so there's, I'm going to talk about time in small bits as well as big bits. The small bit is that um, if you read the New Testament and you read the gospel accounts of Jesus's death on the cross, it says that noon at, at what was called, what we would call midday, the sky went dark until three o'clock and then Jesus dies. And so for monasteries and monks in monasteries for centuries after that they celebrated a series of masses and prayers over the course of the day basically every three hours and the mass which happened at three o'clock in the afternoon was known as none right because that was the ninth hour of the day measured from sunup and um and nine and none right like nine derives from none so N-O-N-E, like as in zero. Well, when Lent came and they said, okay, we got to fast. The fasts used to go till dinner time, like till sundown. And then they said, oh, that's too hard because we're working in the fields. Even monks worked in the fields. So I said, okay, let's do the fasts. The fast would end at that mass, like at that time of day, which would be like three o'clock in the afternoon, our time. And they did that. But then that seemed too hard too. You know, because these people would be waking up at six o'clock in the morning or five o'clock in the morning, right? And uh, working hard all day in the fields and milking and all that stuff. So slowly, they knew that they couldn't end the ma they couldn't end the fast until none. So none, that particular prayer service, kept creeping backwards and backwards and backwards until it landed at midday. And because and the word none became noon. So thanks to Lent, we have noon happening. That's the name for midday is noon because that, that, that prayer service crept backwards until it ended up at midday because nobody wanted to, you know, eat later than that. <laughs> yeah, they made more, they made more exceptions and they said, okay, you, know, you could have one big meal at midday uh, during Lent and then you could have a small one in the morning and a small one in the evening to get you through the day. Um, 
but so that's one way in which time was shaped by Easter and Lent. And then the other way was, and this is much bigger, when the Easter system uh, was formulated in the 300s, they were working off of what was called the Julian calendar, which was uh, created during the time of Julius Caesar, right? So that's, uh, he dies in the uh, 40s BC, I think 43 BC is when he gets assassinated. So before that, he, um, he institutes a calendar, which, you know, it's a solar calendar, so it's 365 days, but they kind of calculated the length. It's not 365 days even, it's 365 days and a bit, and they got that bit wrong. And that meant that over the centuries, all of the dates were shifting down, down, down. And you could tell that they were wrong because a spring equinox happens when there's 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of darkness, right? So if that was originally March 25th, over the centuries kept drifting, drifting, drifting further and further away from March 25th. So, and that meant that Easter, the date for Easter was creeping further and further and further away as well and was ending up in May. And everybody knew that was wrong. So, yeah, so there was the, right? So that's no good. You don't want to be celebrating Easter in May. So um, in, the, in 1582, I think it was, uh, Gregory the 13th, uh, he instituted a calendrical reform where a new calendar was put into place, which we still have. We actually have the Gregorian calendar. And what they did was they lopped 10 days out of October. So it went from like October 4th to October 14th, boom, just like that, right? Like just 10 days lopped out completely. And so that happens and that fixed things. So Easter was back to happening more or less when you'd expect it to happen. So thank you, Easter, for giving us the modern calendar. And not all, not all countries bought into this at the same time. The Catholic countries did, like, you know, France and Spain and stuff did. But the Protestant countries didn't. You know, for years afterwards, they were still on the old calendar, rejecting all of course, Catholic. Of course, a theme happening in our it, conversation here. It doesn't matter <laughs> if it's good or makes sense. The ma the problem is that they made it, and you just can't do that. And it makes sense, but it it's they did it, so we're not going to do it. So, and this actually relates to something else that we still have in our calendar, which is uh, during that. Before the Gregorian calendar came in, uh, New Year's Day was celebrated um, on more or less April 1st. There was, it was sort of March 25th, April 1st was considered the end of the year. And that's when people celebrated and had lots of parties and stuff. And um, when the calendar shifted, they said, no, nah, let's not do New Year's then. Let's put New Year's at January 1st. And so the people who were caught partying on April 1st were considered April Fools. <laughs> and that's where we get that. So thank you, Easter, for April Fool's Day as well. You know, and it's just amazing to me just how many things in our culture can be tracked back to Lent and Easter. Um, even like, you know, we've just gone through two years of the pandemic and unfortunately it doesn't seem to be over. Um, and as a result, people have been locking down and in quarantine, right? You know, you come back from your trip with COVID, you have to go into quarantine for 10 days, right? Then five days. Well, back in the old days, quarantine meant 40 days. And that's where the word comes from, quarant, right? Like as in 40, 40 days, 40 days of waiting specifically. And um, this uh, was instituted during the first 
outbreaks of the bubonic plague in the 14th century in Italy. And they realized that if they kept the ships in the bay that were sick for 40 days, everybody who's going to die was going to die and everybody who survived was well so they could come onto shore. Why did they choose 40 Harsh days? Medical system. Harsh but fair. Yeah, exactly. So, but why did they choose 40 days? Why not 42 or 35? Because they were so used to waiting for 40 days because they've been doing that in Lent, like for centuries and centuries and centuries. So even our, even the language we use for things like quarantine are rooted in Lent. Which for me just makes it so poetic that really the pandemic started in 2020 around Ash Wednesday, the very start of Lent of 2020. And it turned into a now two year long quarantine, a two year long season of Lent, hopefully to be ended at some point soon. But until we figure out when that will be, we'll make our little hot cross buns and stay safe with each other. Thank you, Stephen, for sharing both your time and your talents with us. It has been a pleasure having you on air here today. If you wish to find more information about the Lenten posts, you can see them on our Lawrence Park Community Church Facebook page. You can find that link and our website in the description of this podcast. That is it from us here at the Rooster Crows. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you soon.